you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, let's make a deal. Microsoft shelling out $16 billion for nuanced communication. So that got us thinking, what should be the next tech tie-up? Our traders have some ideas. We'll bring them to you straight ahead. Plus, an all-clear for Alibaba, why one of our traders is calling a $2.8 billion fine the best news we've seen in a while. And later, time to ante up. DraftKings falling 6% today. The stock is now down nearly 20% in the past month. So should you double down on this pullback? But we start off tonight with a semi-smackdown. The gloves coming off in the battle of the chip giants as NVIDIA fires a direct shot at Intel. Let's get straight to Josh Lifton with all the details. Hey, Josh. So, Melissa, CEO Jensen Wong has transformed NVIDIA into a true powerhouse with that company's graphics chips. These are processors that generate images and accelerate AI. Now NVIDIA plans to make its own server CPU, too. Those are the primary brains in most computing devices. NVIDIA also saying today that its first quarter revenue is tracking above its previous outlook of $5.3 billion. And that stock posted its best day here in over a month. Some investors clearly saw NVIDIA's announcement as a direct shot at Intel, which reported $26 billion in revenue from its data center group in 2020. That was a jump of 11%. That stock just had its worst day since late February. So how bad is this news, though, for Pat Gelsinger, tech analyst Patrick Moorhead, countering that his company still does boast certain advantages. NVIDIA, with this new server CPU, is targeting more of a niche market, Patrick says. And Intel is still the giant, dominates about 90% of this market. No response from Intel on that NVIDIA news. There was also that big white House Chip Summit today. Remember, President Biden's infrastructure plan does include $50 billion for the American chip industry. Melissa, back to you. Josh, quick question on the niche market point. How big is this market or, or how profitable is this to make this such a big deal that they're going after specifically this narrow part of the market? You're going after what's called the HP, HPC market. So that is a, a market that would include um, things like national uh, lab, uh, laboratories like Los Alamos. That's why Patrick uh, Moorhead, his point, was saying, one, um, these are different. Intel is dominating about 90% of that server CPU market. And Patrick's point is that um, Intel's focus is different. It's really targeting more general business uses and cloud providers. But we'll see how it plays out, Melissa. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton with all the details there. Guy Dami, it was interesting to see how Intel traded because as soon as that release crossed from NVIDIA, stock dropped like a rock. Zero-sum game. I mean, not only in, in terms of Intel's move, but, you know, Qualcomm got a downgrade today. Stock didn't trade well. Obviously, AMD didn't trade particularly well. Texas Instruments has been hanging in there. And I think what the market is saying is, you know, who's the leader here and who are we going to who are we really going to get behind in terms of growth? NVIDIA has a huge valuation. I think we all would agree. But it also might be the most exciting uh, tech name or chip name. BK spoke about that in early March, by the way, about 20% or so ago. I still think there's value in an AMD. I am surprised at how well Texas Instrument trades with 8% EPS growth at a 27 multiple. And just for you playing stock market at home, note that today's high in NVIDIA, 614.10, was basically the same how we made back in February, and we did it on three times normal volume. If you're trading it, 
-hmm. trading around it. Today's not a bad day to take some chips off the table, no pun intended. For all the folks out there who thought that Pat Gelsinger was going to mark the start of an Intel turnaround, Karen, does that that go away or, or does that become diminished in any way because NVIDIA is going after this niche market? Well, I'm not sure because we, I don't know that he's really gotten time. I know the market really likes him and is comfortable and he's not new to the company. But um, this was it entirely unexpected. I don't know. But we're also not going to see the effects for a couple of years. And then it, it sort of makes you wonder, all right, what what else could NVIDIA do after that? So, I mean, the stock Intel is inexpensive. It should be relatively inexpensive. But this penalty, I, I think I'm starting to get a little bit interested. It's sort of, I don't know, the valuation when I look at NVIDIA, obviously NVIDIA is just, you know, they're kicking on all cylinders. They talked about every line of their business doing better than they thought when they had that 5.3 billion number they put out today. The stock reflects a lot of really great things. Intel, not so much. So I'm, I'm more drawn to that value proposition, even though this isn't great news for them. This also isn't great news for AMD. But they're sort of in between the two in terms of valuation and momentum. Right. This new Grace chip that NVIDIA is going to make won't be on the market till 2023. So to Karen's point, a couple of years. And in that period of time, Intel has some leeway to sort of prove himself, prove itself, Tim, don't you think? Look, we know that the amount of money Intel told you the amount of money they need to reinvest or invest in their business and in innovation. So there shouldn't be a surprise. Now, this is the largest you know, chip company coming after them uh, in a space that, as we've said, dominate over 90 percent. So um, to the extent that there's expected to be competition, um, I, how can you not have expected something like this? And, and look, Intel um, was at all time highs when that news hit. So let, let's be clear. I actually think that the performance isn't that bad from a trading perspective on, on, uh, uh, on a day's basis. As a trader, uh, you know, I, I think Intel um, had, had a very strong move off that Gelsinger announcement, off that, that investor day. Uh, it's not surprising it needed a catalyst to pull back a bit, but I wouldn't be running from this stock. So I guess this, uh, this really begs the question, most obvious segue into a game of would you rather at this point. Um, part of NVIDIA's move was not just this announcement of this new Grace chip, but also that that first quarter was tracking ahead of expectations. It's firing on on all cylinders when it comes to graphics chips, AI. It got the kicker from crypto and cryptomania that's going on, Dan. So would you rather at this point NVIDIA, which seems to be firing on all cylinders with the wind at its back or Intel, where you had to bank on a turnaround? Yeah, Mel, I think I'd rather AMD right here. Guy Adami power pitched this <laughs> okay. thing a few weeks ago. And, <laughs> and I really like the relative underperformance right now to the SMH. And I think there's obviously some overhang about the Xilinx deal um, and, and, and what that means for this company going forward. Um, so I'd rather AMD here. I'm with Guy. And I actually agree on the NVIDIA that I think that you probably take profits at that prior all-time high right here. I'll just make one point. You just said it, Mel, that these chips are not going to be on the market until 2023. When I look at estimates for NVIDIA going forward, I'm expecting, or at least the street is expecting, low 30% EPS growth and sales growth this current fiscal year. And then they're expecting it to decelerate meaningfully to about 10, 11% for both in fiscal 2023. Well, that's the year that these CPUs that are going to start hitting the market from a competitive standpoint. So it seems like at this valuation, about 17 times sales, 45 times earnings with that expected deceleration, 
generation. NVIDIA needs to do something here. So um, to me, this makes sense, but there's a lot of time that's going to happen between here and then. And I think Intel and AMD probably trade okay in the meantime, given the shortages that we're seeing right now in the space. Guy, will you please play my reindeer game? Intel or NVIDIA? Well, I, I, yes, I like what Dan did. He went off the board for 500. But to answer your question in terms of the way you framed it, I, I would rather Intel. And it's got nothing to do with what I think about NVIDIA. It's everything to do with how the stock traded today, the run it's had off of 495, and the fact that it traded up to, and for a day at least, you know, failed at that 614 and change level. I think Tim's point about Intel is right, as is Karen's in terms of valuation. So given uh, today's price action where both stocks are, the answer is Intel in the game of would you rather. Okay, thank you for that. Our next guest says NVIDIA's move yeah. onto Intel's turf makes a lot of strategic sense. Let's bring in Jared Weisfeld, tech sector specialist at Jefferies. Jared, good to see you again. Good to be here. Thanks, why, why is going after this niche market so important? I think it speaks to what NVIDIA is focused on over the next five to 15 years, right? They're in the middle of acquiring ARM or trying to for $40 billion. They know the battle for the data center is at risk. And by acquiring ARM, they're going to get access to a lot of this critical technology, but they don't need to, you know, they're showing the innovation that's occurring before they're even getting through this acquisition. So you think about the benefits that they're talking about, they're talking about 10 times improved performance utilizing their own Grace CPU combined with their own accelerators, their GPUs. That's a meaningful, that's a meaningful amount. So, you know, you start with a niche segment like HPC, uh, high performance compute and AI artificial intelligence. And then what you do is you build credibility before you start going into the larger total addressable market. So it makes a lot of sense. And it also makes a lot of sense that they're partnering with Amazon. They're partnering with MediaTek. They're partnering with Marvell. As they're going through this regulatory process, it certainly makes sense to get as many friends as possible within the partner ecosystem. So it certainly speaks to the long-term structural growth within data center and how they're attacking the market from an ARM architecture perspective. Hey, hey, Jared, it's Tim. But does does this do anything or add complexity to the, the antitrust uh, around NVIDIA ARM? I mean, is that something that you think uh, makes this deal more complicated? Obviously, uh, not challenging Intel or a challenge to Intel and data center. Uh, that's welcomed, I'm sure, on some level by the industry. But to the overall dynamics going on between this, as you said, uh, takeover they're trying to get done, do you think this complicates that? I think if anything, it can speak to the fact that they're innovating so aggressively within the ARM ecosystem. If you're a partner and you're seeing them innovate like this and deliver this kind of product roadmap, you're going to be happy. And they're courting, they're courting their partners. So I take that as an incremental positive in terms of just the progress that they're trying to make uh, with respect to regulatory. I think the big hurdle is going to be China. Can they get SAMR approval? You saw Applied Materials uh, and Kokusai got rejected yep. from China a few weeks ago. So I think, you know, this is going to be a long drawn out process. They laid out about an 18 month timeline. So we're still very early days, but I think it's an incremental step in the right direction as they secure partner ecosystem uh, approval. Hey, Jared, it's Dan. Um, thanks for joining us, bud. Hey, so um, as far as semi-equipment stocks uh, go, how would you see this changing any of the deck chairs that are set up? We know that Taiwan Semi keeps raising their cap back, so there's some major tailwinds right, ha right now. How would NVIDIA's entrance into this market and the closure of the arm deal, uh, what does it mean for semi-cap equipment stocks, any in particular either? For sure. When you take a step back and you look at the semiconductor uh, capital equipment landscape, including applied materials, KLA 10 core, et cetera, 
they're in a very good position right now when you think about the fact that we're in a significant shortage. We obviously had the summit at the White House today uh, with uh, multiple executives from the automotive industry and the semiconductor industry talking about uh, when they can alleviate that shortage. It plays into the fact that, you know, we're going to be in shortage for at least the next six to nine months. So cyclically, they're in a very good spot. But it's an interesting question, Dan, because from a structural standpoint, you think about artificial intelligence and HPC type workloads, they're going to be using and leveraging silicon that's significantly larger in nature on a millimeter square basis. So what that means is that the demand for semiconductor capital equipment, uh, the intensity is only going to increase. So this is no doubt a long term structural positive tailwind for the entire semiconductor capital equipment landscape. It sounds like you think there's more upside to semi-cap equipment as opposed to semiconductors. They're just in a very um, sweet spot right now, not only for the cyclical benefit. And if you listen to Applied Materials Analyst Day that was hosted uh, last week, they talked about $85 billion in wafer fab equipment spend uh, over the next few years. And, you know, you also have multinationals, right? You have China, you have the U.S., you have Europe looking to add capacity from a, from a national perspective in terms of just nation-backed uh, foundries. So they've got very significant talents at their backs. All right. And, and while we have you, Jared, got to get your quick thoughts on, on Microsoft for Nuance. What do you think of this? So, yeah, listen, uh, second largest acquisition um, in, uh, in Microsoft's history behind LinkedIn. And it's all about augmenting their total addressable market. So augmenting Microsoft Healthcare Cloud, they're doubling their TAM, their total addressable market to $500 billion, combining Nuance's AI algorithms with Microsoft's leadership in Azure on the cloud side. And so not only are they attacking the healthcare market in a pretty meaningful way, leveraging the existing Microsoft capabilities, but they're bringing very significant and critical IP towards Microsoft Teams. So if you think about Microsoft Teams, which is the competitor to Slack, Microsoft's all in on Teams to the point where even Satya Nadella's comp package is now based on Teams performance. So they're going all in, increasing and augmenting the capabilities from a team standpoint, and they're going to be able to integrate that seamlessly with, uh, with Nuance. I think it makes a lot of strategic sense. All right, Jared, great to see you. Thanks for your thoughts. Thank you. Jared Weisfeld. I think that's, that was interesting in terms of Satya Nadella's compensation is tied to teams and what would that mean to not just the Slack, but also to a Zoom, let's say. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty sneaky little acquisition here. You know, $20 billion with debt and everything like that. It's a rounding error on Microsoft's, uh, you know, market cap and even on their balance sheet. Um, and I think Jared laid it out why they're doing it here. They're adding some capabilities. Azure is becoming uh, more and more of a competitor. That's one of the reasons why Microsoft's almost a $2 trillion market cap. So to me, this makes sense. They can, they can basically do whatever they want. They were looking at the TikTok. They were looking at Discord. They were looking at a few things. This this one, it's like literally 1% of their sales, but it means so much more to them if it's done properly and gives them the access to some of these markets where they think they can flex with their cloud. Yeah, they wanted to do something. It was, a, it was very, very apparent. And Karen, maybe the, the biggest tell is the movement or the lack of movement in Microsoft stock in response to this deal. Right. Well, if you think about it, it's an all-cash deal. So they had cash sitting on the sidelines basically earning nothing. And they could buy this, which is strategically really important. They said it would be uh, dilutive 1% in the first year and then accretive thereafter. And it's still, there would be no change in the company's $20 billion buyback. So to Dan's point, you know, they can do whatever they want. This, uh, uh, this makes sense to me. All right. Well, this $16 billion deal for Nuance got us thinking, 
who should be the next tech tie-up. So we're going to play a little game of Let's Make a Deal Tech Takeover Edition. <laughs> Each trader has come up with their perfect pair. So we want to kick things off with Karen. What are you thinking? Yeah, I got it. Perfect pair. So it's Peloton and Tonal. So I know that's not, you may not think of the tech. Of course it's tech. It's not just a bike, right? It's a consumer tech product. They already have the bike, obviously. They have the treadmill. They have the classes. But what they don't have is serious weight training. And that's what Tonal is. And it just fits on your wall. So, Dan, you could have it next to your your, um, treadmill. And it makes perfect sense that they would integrate all these aspects of being fit and have your own little gym. And if Peloton buys Tonal, they can be Pelotonal. See? Meant to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, the name is, is pretty catchy, Pelotonal. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what do you think since, since you are a, uh, a Peloton user? Well, I'm obviously, you know, do the weights, too. You can just tell. Um, so to me, yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think, you know, we were talking about it earlier. I, I think the Lulu mirror thing was really interesting. Obviously, Peloton is buying that pre-court. So, I, I mean, they're looking to beef up whatever they have, but I've already, already beefed up here. Over. I mean, your suit will rip off your body if you continue to do, do what you're doing. Um, Tim, let's go to you in terms of your, your tie-up. What do you think? Yeah, so mine's a, a, a fintech tie-up, and and to me this is Square buying LendingTree, and, and to me this deal makes a ton of sense for uh, both capital markets reasons and I think a fit. Um, ultimately, look, Square's cash app is the kind of the one-stop stickiness that's allowed this company to grow, and and ultimately means you never have to leave. Why not let you know layer in LendingTree, which is a three billion dollar company, well off of its highs, had uh, a lot of run into its last fourth quarter numbers, frankly disappointing on margins, disappointing on earnings. The stock has collapsed, uh, and yet this is a full suite of products in consumer finance. And, and, you know, whether it's lending, whether it's insurance, this makes a lot of sense to me, I I think, for the profile that Square is building. And again, Square, in terms of that stock, using that as a currency after, you know, effectively being three times where it was pre-COVID, we know what they're doing in terms of this this overall strategy, and I think this makes a ton of sense. All right. Uh, Dan, your tie-up? Uh, yeah, so, you know, there was a headline last week that Amazon is about 10% of the U.S. ad market right now. They're just a behemoth. They're going to do $16 billion in sales here. I think their Twitter and Snap um, ultimately have to merge. Those two combined have about $9 billion in expected sales. Most of that is obviously digital ads right here. Now, listen, I used to think that an Alphabet or a Facebook um, or maybe even an Apple might buy one of these guys. But with the regulatory oversight on some of those big social ads, Ad names, I just don't see it. So with Amazon coming up here, um, they're going to become a behemoth. And I think that you're going to need to see Twitter and Snap, which really don't have overlapping products. I don't think that would be an issue um, with just kind of regulators here. I think they need to beef up. And I think that they could be a meaningful competitor to Facebook and some of the um, properties that Google has. Mm, that's an interesting one. Guy, how about you? Uh well, I should say pick me, Monty, for you uh, odd couple fans out there. That's an homage to Monty <laughs> yes. Hall, number one. Number two, all these deals are fantastic. But listen, they all have integration risk, potentially regulatory risk. You know, they'll get past them. And I love the deals. Here's one that has no integration risk and no regulatory risk. And this company would spend 10 percent of their cash hoard. That would be Apple buying the Bitcoin. And it's interesting. You hear Michael Saylor from MicroStrategies talk about balance sheets being Basically, um, 
turning a negative into a positive when they transform their cash positions into Bitcoin positions. $25 billion for Apple is 10% of their cash hoard. It's nothing. And I think the ramifications would be huge, not only for Apple stock, but for the industry as well. So that would be my sort of off-the-chart uh, tech wrap-up, or what you call it, um, meet-up or something? I'm not sure what Let's make it. a deal. Um, but it, would Let's the implication <laughs> be that Apple eventually accepts Bitcoin as payment or will use it maybe as part of its payment system? What, does that not make sense? Isn't that seamless in terms of what they're doing going forward? And listen, you know, Michael, again, go back and look at the, some of the things that Michael Saylor said about balance sheets and the transformation <laughs> thereof. And for Apple, it would be a small foray into something that could be potentially huge. So I actually think it makes a lot of sense. All right. Coming up, Palantir feeling the pain. The stock falling nearly 3% today. But we saw something bubbling up in the options market that suggests a turnaround is in the works. We'll bring in the trade. But first, if you don't own it, buy it. If you do own it, buy some more. That's what one of our traders says you should do with Alibaba. Why? $2.8 billion fine is actually great news for investors. All that and more when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Alibaba topping the tape today. The company hit with a $2.8 billion fine by Chinese regulators as a result of an anti-monopoly investigation. Now, Karen, you're saying that it's the best news we've seen for Baba in a while. Why? Yes, because, you know, basically they were, think of them as a metaphor, being on trial. And the trial's over now, and they got the tiniest slap on the wrist, and it's over. That's it. So when we look at December 20th, the stock was 256, and then this announcement of this antitrust investigation was announced. Traded down to 220 that day. Now, if I had told you or me, because I was a sad holder that day, that there would be a less than 1% penalty and then the investigation would be over, I'd be pretty happy with that outcome. So I'm pretty happy with this outcome. And I think that where the stock opened today, it really wasn't fully reflecting. I think it's on its way back up now. We had also Ant Financial had um, some clarity there as well. I do think Ant Financial, the value has been somewhat diminished, but not nearly as much as the overall stock in BABA has. So I bought, I was long going into today. I bought some more today and I, I didn't quite get as much as I wanted and it kind of took off a little bit. But this is very, very good news. Yeah, we got to go to the ambassador as well for his thoughts on, on BABA, Tim. And, and is it too early or too soon to say it's an all clear for, for Chinese tech in general, or is there still an overhang that regulators go after other tech companies? 
I, look, I think this, this, at least from Samer, I think this investigation is closed. And, and as someone that's been investing in emerging markets for a long time, I love to see these kind of settlements. What I didn't want to hear them say is actually we, we dispute the findings of the anti-monopoly uh, group and, and we're mm. going to contest this. That's the worst thing they could have done. Um, I love the fact that, in fact, the headline I saw said something along the lines of um, we thank them for their guidance and, and, and they will move on and they'll thank them. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Um, I, this is great news. This is what you want to see in a, uh, an emerging markets environment where Big Brother certainly can do what they want here. I also have said all along, um, I actually think that they are guilty of this. I actually think that uh, what the regulator is doing in China to build a proper, uh, both you know, support the tech industry, to build an e-commerce industry, um, I think is the right thing to do. And, and I, I also am long Alibaba, and, and I think buying it on this news is important. Yeah. So, Guy, what do you think? Is this really the all clear for Alibaba or does this tell you that regulators can effectively come in and, and fine you for anti-monopolistic practices, et cetera, et cetera, anytime they want to? Yeah, it could happen again. Right. But the markets learn how to deal with it. I think Karen makes a great point. I love it when she cites levels because that 220 level that she talked about, if you go back to January 2020, you know, the stock made an all time high right around 225 and then sold off pretty precipitously. So past resistance becomes support. And we found it in the wake of $220 a share. So I think you have something to trade against. And I do think it's the all clear. So I'm with K-Fine on this one for sure. What do you think, Dan, a basket of Chinese internet stocks or a basket of U.S. internet stocks? Um, probably China here. And, and I think a lot to do with the fact that the sentiment's really bad. They performed really bad. But I don't know if you remember this, Mel. We used to have this chart formation. I used to have a graphic. I don't know if they can find it. Remember the triangle of death? Um, this chart really does have the triangle of death chart. Now, 220 is clearly that neckline. If you want to look at a one-year chart and you look at the left and the right shoulders, and Guy, you know that that left shoulder can have two shoulders here. So I look at that downtrend. You might have clear sailing up to 250, but if it gets rejected there, you might see another retest of the 220 level and just watch out below if it gets below there. That being said, I prefer the Chinese internet because of the underperformance over the last few months. That left shoulder could have two shoulders. That sounds pretty bad. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds awful. Sounds like an awful formation. <laughs> We've got a lot more ahead. Here's what's coming up. Uber shares driving higher as the ride-hailing company posts record bookings. Is this the ultimate reopening signal? That trade ahead. But first, one top strategist is calling this market the strangest he's ever seen. What odd phenomenon is he referring to? And what's his playbook? Those details next. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Finishing the day in the red as investors gear up for earnings season and the setup has been strong. The Dow and S&P 500 sitting near record levels. And our next guest is questioning the level of market exuberance, calling it the strangest melt-up he has ever seen. 
Julian Emanuel is BTIG's chief equity and derivatives strategist. Julian, good to have you with us. Strangest you've ever seen in your entire career. Why? Well, basically, if you look at the month of April, it's just an incredibly strong month uh, and and really almost straight up. You know, today was just a tiny, tiny pause uh, in the uptrend. Uh, And when you think about that kind of melt up type action, what you would normally expect is rising volumes, rising enthusiasm, rising call volumes, especially since uh, call buying on the part of the public has been a big story of the last nine months. And we've got just the opposite. Uh, and so it, it really is a puzzler. On the one hand, we think it's actually a positive sign because what it says is that bigger picture, this isn't sort of the end of end rallies of a, what's only a 12-month bull market when the average bull market lasts almost four years and rises 150%. We're up 85% in 12 months. But at the same time, it's a little bit more cautionary when we think about the potential for earnings season to be an upside catalyst. That's not likely going to be the case in the weeks ahead. Julian, it's Karen. Let me ask you something you said about volume. So if the volume were much greater, then would you be thinking the market is uh, reaching a peak? Uh, We would be thinking likely there's more explosive upside Given the fact that when you think about it, uh, we've overcome just a number of things, uh, you know, uh, rises and falls in the meme stocks, uh, you know, rises and falls in EVs, SPACs, solar stocks, all of these things that, uh, you know, essentially have been quite speculative. But if we were seeing rising volume and rising price, we would say there's more to it. But. That having been said, with the VIX down around 16, 17, you're still looking to put on downside hedges in case the music stops. And when the activity gets frenzied like that, you don't ever know when the music's going to stop. Julian, Elon Musk asked uh, Kathy Wood a pretty, pretty much a rhetorical question. I think at least he knew the answer to it, let's put it that way, about market cap, the S&P market cap over GDP. Does it matter? We had an interesting conversation last week about it. Does it matter? Because as we sit here, you know, we're somewhere between, I don't know, 165 percent, 180 percent S&P over GDP. Uh, market seems not to care. Should we? These, when it comes to valuation metrics, what we've seen is the market doesn't care until it cares. The question is, what's going to get it uh, to care? And if we go back uh, to the beginning of the year, We've had these uh, hiccups every now and then when yields started rising perhaps a bit too strongly. Now, if we go back to Chair Powell on television last night, that's not likely going to be the case that we're going to have yields rising strongly. What it says is that if you're committing new capital to the market right now, you shouldn't expect a profit right away. What we've seen, though, is that when you've had a paradigm of the market's sustained valuation at this extreme, for a long period of time, again, this early into the bull market cycle, what we're likely going to have is a period of digestion before we move higher. But it is the market saying that it expects earnings and particularly now economic growth to catch up with valuations. You know, the notes that I got from our producer here, Julian, were very interesting because it says that you are very, very with the very, very in all caps 
bullish on Bitcoin. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if, if, let's say somebody at home had, you know, a sum of money, let's just say $10,000 for argument's sake, to put someplace from now until the end of the year, would that be in U.S. equities or would that be in Bitcoin? Uh, so here's, here's our view on Bitcoin. Long term, we think it's the, the story is very sound. We think that it is likely to become an increasingly more important percentage of someone's assets. We think for now, there's some di digestion to be done. There's a very important IPO coming out this week. We want to see how uh, digital assets respond. Uh, we would say that with both U.S. equities and Bitcoin, you need to think long term. We do think both are going higher. Uh, we do think that uh, Bitcoin looks quite strong into next year, but don't buy it just because you think this IPO is going to be successful this week. Okay. Julian, thank you. Julian Emanuel of BTIG. For somebody who thinks Bitcoin is going to be at 92 grand next year, Tim, <laughs> I don't know, it sounded like Bitcoin to me, but um, what do you make of Julian's uh, assessment of this melt-up? Yeah. Well, first of all, April is is seasonally always a great month for the market. Always, uh, often is, and and May and June often can be awful months. So, look, I, the expectation of this earnings season being remarkable uh, is is something that that I I am concerned about. I, I'm more concerned about the point in which uh, analysts and companies themselves have actually started to talk about normalized earnings. So, um, I do think you have. Uh, for example, let's take the financials. Banks have rallied dramatically into this. Uh, mm -hmm. I own money center banks. Uh, do I expect their numbers to be good? I think they're going to be great. Um, I think banks, if they follow the script that they followed uh, and they typically follow or have in the last six or seven quarters, they're going to trade down on this news and it's going to take them three weeks into earnings season for them to pick up steam again. And I think that's kind of where we are with the market. Yeah. And by the way, they always trade. It always seems like they trade down on earnings, Dan. <laughs> yep. That's the pattern. Yeah, they, they do. I think it's like Tim outlined. I think it's a particularly hard setup for a yeah. lot of companies that are especially sectors that have done outperformed. I'll just make, mention one thing, you know, about Julian's caution near term about this. What feels like euphoria. It's really hard to find bear cases for the market right now, like really hard. He talks about in his career, he hasn't seen this or that. I can't remember a time where just the, the universal bullishness because of so many odd things that have happened um, specifically over the last year, namely six trillion dollars in stimulus which is, you know, about 30% of the market cap that we have here in the U.S. Um, and I'll just make one last point. You know, this year, although we are up nearly 10% in the S&P 500, we've seen two massive dislocations in the market, which is really actually should be very worrying to a lot of people about market structure. The first one in January about shorts, and then the other one, obviously, with Archegos about longs. And if you think that Archegos is the only fund out there that has very concentrated, very levered um, bets in stocks that have appreciated a lot, you got another thing coming. So if there is a reason for the market to sell off, then you remember that whole thing about total return swaps and, and the kind of opaqueness that we see there? You know, this is going to be an issue here. So I don't know what the reason will be. I'm not calling for a big decline, but the market structure has been tested this year in both ways. And I don't think it's really held up particularly well right now. Coming up, best month ever. Uber driving in a record number of bookings for March. Should you speed into this name? We got the trade ahead. Plus, shares of DraftKings dropping. The stock is now down nearly 20% in just a month. Time to ante up. Stick around. We've got all that and much more when Fast Money comes right back.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Uber jumping 3% today. The company announcing record gross bookings in March, a sign things might be getting back to normal in the ride-hailing business. We've heard from uh, Uber CEO Dariq Khosrowshahi on CNBC's new show Tech Check earlier today. Here's what he said about the path to profitability. When we talk about adjusted EBITDA prof- uh, profitability getting there this year, we mean profitability after overhead on an EBITDA basis. So all-in profitability, and that will include businesses that we're leaning into, like grocery, where we will be losing money and investing just because the opportunity is so big. And then we will have businesses like our mobility business that are a bit more mature, where we have stronger margins, essentially able to fund some of these growth businesses. What I thought was also really interesting, Dan, was that it wasn't just gross bookings for rides, but it was also record um, bookings for food delivery because the premise had always been, well, it's going to do really well in food delivery during the pandemic. And then when things change around, that's going to go down. Yeah, you know, I've heard him speak numerous times. He had a really great interview with Kara Swisher a couple months ago, and they were saying, listen, some of this behavior that a lot of Wall Street was betting against, you know, um, and the, in the throes of the pandemic um, has accelerated and it's here to stay. So I think you can actually count on that food delivery. They've made some uh, moves. They bought Postmates, right? So they're consolidating um, around that. So, you know, it, it seems like they have it firing all cylinders. I'll just tell you, as someone in New Yorker who's been there the whole time during the pandemic, it's still like a seven-minute wait time to get an Uber. So um, I'm just a little skeptical about that record rides number. Interesting. Um, Should we draw any conclusions um, with Lyft just last month saying that ride uh, levels have reached pre-pandemic levels versus record levels, whereas Uber saying record levels, Tim? Look, I I believe they were both see, uh, you know, beyond pre-COVID demand as we get into the early summer, not the late summer. And, and I think the pent-up demand means we overshoot. And I think, um, like, I actually love hearing Uber talk about their investment into grocery. It reminds me a lot of Amazon. I, I realize, you know, very different, but low margin business, um, where at some point that investment gives them a major moat, at least a head start over a lot of other people. Uh, and I think it's something that's worth investing in now while they have gross bookings at record levels also across the other business. So um, I, I like the Uber story here. Uh, I like for, for both rideshare companies, the dominant ones, the, the backdrop, I think, for reopening is strong. But which one? Guy. Lyft. I think Lyft learned. And see, I played that game so well that time. Didn't even you hesitate. Did. You didn't Lyft stray. learned from Uber's mm-hmm. mistakes. I mean, I think Lyft has, I think their pathway to profitability is clearer than Uber's. Lyft actually hasn't traded as well as Uber recently, but I think in earnings on May 12th, you own Lyft, not Uber. All right, coming up. A double dose of opportunity. First up, DraftKings going cold recently. The stock down nearly 20% in a month. Should you bet on this pullback? Plus, Palantir is pulling back, but option traders are betting on a turnaround happening very soon. We'll break down the action when Fast Money comes right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for today's buzzkill. Check out DraftKings dropping more than 6%. Lady Luck not helping the sports betting stock recently. DraftKings is now down nearly 20% in the past month. And we also saw some weakness from other of the recent other recent SPACs today. Luminar, QuantumScape, Virgin, Lordstown, all seeing some big losses. Um, Tim, you flagged this one. What do you make of it? 
Well, I think DraftKings has a couple things. I'm, I'm long DraftKings, first of all. And, and the argument here is not, you know, profitability short to medium term. It's about growing market share and some, uh, some formulaic representation of how they will participate in that. Uh, the, the New York uh, gambling proposals and the legislation coming through looks really cloudy at best, very confusing. I think that's a negative. Look, in terms of broader money into the SPAC market, uh, if we want to still call DraftKings, it is, it is a SPAC, although I think it's trading, uh, you know, really on the fundamentals of the company, not on SPAC fundamentals. I think uh, in SPAC land, um, there have been a lot of issues with, with essentially the pipes that are funding a lot of these SPACs and really being uh, the punctuation on, on how emphatic the investors have been on the deal or not. And I think the pipe market is going through some some pain right now. Uh, I think there's a lot of deals out there. There's a lot of indigestion. There's a lot of folks um, that are that are pulling back. And I think there's a, a lot of folks in the capital market side that are pulling back on those deals because they don't see an appetite. Yeah. Uh, Karen, you also you, you all were talking about this on the call earlier mm -hmm. today. But, Karen, what specifically are you seeing? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm seeing what Tim's seeing, which is the pipes, which is so a SPAC, they may sell shares to the public, mm -hmm. but then also they want to have investors that they know will vote with them, and those are called pipe investors. I think it's private investment in public entities, I think is the acronym. And so they help secure the deal and get more money and, and enable the sponsor to know that they're going to get a deal done. So I think the word Tim used, indigestion, is perfect. There, so many of the pipe players have more than maybe more than they want, given how some of the SPACs are trading now. When they're all trading up great, sure, everyone's got an appetite for more. But now that they're getting close to, in many cases to 10 or even below 10, um, it's not as, not as enticing. So I, that indigestion needs to work its way through before we see more in the SPAC market. And um, I don't know if this is, I don't know if it's fully thawed yet, uh, this cold streak. A little more time, I think. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught the cover of New York Magazine, but <laughs> this seemed to me like a sign of the top when SPAC, the acronym, makes it to the cover of New York Magazine. Can I SPAC my stonks with NFTs, Guy? <laughs> you say that to me knowing full well the response you're going to get like and, the, and the look of up. disdain I'm going to... Yep. Go. It's you wind me up. You, you wind me up. Right. You, you create this. Right. And it, now it's in my head. It's going to upset me the rest of the night. Despite the Yankee outcome tonight, I'm now um, not happy. Is it a sign of the top? We've seen a number of things like this. It should, in theory, be a sign of the top. But the market doesn't seem to care. Just quickly, in terms of these pipes being clogged, it would be fascinating to see Metamucil rolled up in a SPAC. Think about that. That would clean up those pipes in a second. I don't even know how to respond to that. I'm just going to let that go. Coming up, <laughs> is Palantir primed to pop? We uh, spotted something today in the options market that could point to a turnaround in the works. We'll break that down uh, when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Palantir pulling back today, falling more than 3%. But a lot of retail trader activity in the options market seems to be pointing to a very quick recovery. Let's bring in Mike Coe for more. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, so Palantir options saw above average call activity today, about 90,000 contracts more than it trades on average. And the most action was seen in the 24, 25, and 26 strike calls, April, that expire this coming Friday. The 24 strike calls, for example, traded about 45,000 contracts. Those were trading for just 
under 70 cents. So buyers of those are obviously betting that the stock could recover above 25 or so by the end of the week. All right. Um, Mike's going to stick around. Dan, what do you think of uh, Palantir? Well, it's really interesting. Based on that other conversation we were having about mm -hmm. SPACs, this stock is down 50% from its all-time highs here. Kink it out of its own way. It's down in the year versus a NASDAQ and an S&P. They're up nearly 10%. So I think this is another sign of just some enthusiasm coming out of some of these once very hot parts of the stock market. Yeah. If memory serves, Guy P, in your hope trade, was Palantir. And hope springs eternal, and your memory is well served, clearly. And to Dan's point, it hasn't been... Listen, after trading up to 39 and change, the stock's 23 now, and it has not been a performer at all. But Kathy Wood keeps talking about how much she loves the stock and thinks she just added another million shares. And I think in the earnings on May 11th, you buy the stock. Listen, it's been very difficult. I get it. I think people are concerned they can't scale down their offerings for medium-sized businesses. I think they'll figure out, and I think it's still uh, worthy of the P in the hope trade. All right. Mike Coe, thanks for that. And uh, for the full show, Options Action, it's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, your final trades. Check out shares of Chipotle Mexican Grill hitting an all-time high today. Got an upgrade, also got a price target raise. Guy, you flagged this one on our call. <laughs> Because I'm a huge Chipotle fan. I mean, I think it's, they do wonderful things. It's a, it's, it's, you talk about a great turnaround story. This will be in the Harvard Business Review. You'll be reading about this 20 years from now, how they turned what was really a dire situation and probably one of the best fast food companies out there. People will knock it on valuation. Ray James just gave him an $1,800 price mm -hmm. target. I think Nicole Miller at Piper Jaffray has a $2,000 price target. You stay along this name into earnings, I believe, on April 21st. All right. Burrito it blowout. <laughs> it is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, I don't think this news today by NVIDIA is a blowout for Intel. In fact, the, the, the turnaround at Intel really is about investment in their core businesses. And I think uh, you know, CPU and server still remain so. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, my final trade is Viacom. I think the dust has settled on Archegos. And I think we'll see some analysts who had to bow out during the whole craziness start to come back in. It's a good value at this price. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so one game I did play well for you, Mel, was the Would You Rather Chinese versus U.S. International stocks. One way to play the Chinese stocks is FXI. Some of the big names make up a big weight of it. Yeah, I appreciated that, Dan. Agai Adami. <laughs> AMAT, that, that whole thing we did got me thinking. A-M-A-T. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.